0: Would you please welcome in interviewer's chair, our good friend, record collector, contributor, and once again, I have to say, is it the top 1.5% of music podcasts in the world? Yes, St- Jason Barnard of Strange Brew. And our, um, our very special guest and, and my new best friend. Um, <laughs> when, when I got in touch with, with, with Rob... Originally, and I sent her an email, and the old predictive text kicked in, and I asked him to come to talk about Sad Barrett, (laughs) which, uh, which he gleefully, gleefully, put on um, on um, Twitter, Twitter, and I thought, what what. But then, but no. straight away, I, I, straight away, I, I, straight away I said no, because he never mentioned who'd who asked him. So I thought he's a gentleman after all.
1: <laughs> and, and I also said, someone's just wanted to come and talk about Sad Barrett, and I said, you know, I'm going to go and do it. Yeah, he yeah. did, yeah. Right. yes. Yeah. Simply because you called him Sad Barrett. <laughs> you won <So>. my heart.
2: <laughs>
0: Anyway, as I said, he turned out to be a gentleman, as I found out and spent a couple of hours with him today. So, will you please welcome Mr. Rob Chapman? Thank you.
2: A uh, huge welcome, Rob, to the Cat Club. And um, your association or, or, or connection with Sid Barrett must go back over 50 years, and even in the early 70s, there was. There's some interesting uh, moments in, in that um, I read that you actually called Sid Barrett up at home uh, around that period. Do you want to talk about kind of why that yeah. occurred and how you, how you managed to get his number?
1: Yeah, well, um, I grew up 20 miles from Cambridge. I grew up in a small town called Sandy in Bedfordshire. And I went to the, I mean, I first heard, I, I heard to see Emily play when I was like 12 on Radio Caroline one evening sitting on the wall outside the wreck in the springtime. And the DJ said, that's called Arnold Lane by Pink Floyd. And I thought that's a great name, a great name for a song as well. And a mate of mine actually, this sounds like something out of the movies, but my mate said, yeah, they're called Pink Floyd. They're going to be really big. And he said that, you know, my mate said that. So it was in straight away from Arnold Lane. And um, I went to the Sid Barrett and Stars gig, which we can maybe talk about at some point, you know, and got involved with Terrapin magazine. And shortly, and, um, oh, and they, the Barrett's were in the phone book, because everyone was then, David Bowie was in the phone book still then. <laughs> you could, yeah, his number, David Jones Beckham, he was still in the phone book in the early 70s. And I phoned up Sid just after that, you know, and Sid it like, just chance it, because I've always been a bit of a chancer, and I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll see if I can interview him. And his mum answered, Wynne answered, and she said, oh, no, he's in London doing his music, in that way that mums talk about their kids. (laughs) He's in London doing his music. That was debatable to what extent he was doing his music, but he was in London. And after the Terrapin thing, um, there was a little advert appeared in one of the underground mags, which I used to read all the time, and it was Circle Agency is now representing Sid Barrett. And so I phoned them, and... I mean, nowadays, you wouldn't get anywhere near something like that, or they just told you to sod off or whatever. And they they gave me his home number. And I think, <laughs> thinking back, and this is when he was living with, he must have been with Dougie, when he was living in Olds Court with Dougie, Dougie Fields. And um, at the time, I I sort of thought, well, is this, I, I thought, they must be trying to get him back into doing stuff. The only reason they would have given a number to a 17-year-old, you know, callow kid like me... Would have been well. Let's see if we can get him out there and doing stuff. So I phoned this number, and unmistakably Sid answered. It was quite clearly his voice. And then he, I said, um, yeah, you know, I've been called by the um, Circle, and I want to do an interview. And he said, you'll have to talk to, and I can't remember the name, lost in the mist of time. You know, you'll have to talk to. And he put the, ph- I heard him put the phone down, obviously just on the side of something. And I thought, and it, it, a few minutes went by, and I could hear, I could hear footsteps going up and down in the room. And I thought, well, does he mean he's just gone to get somebody, or did, or or is he coming back with that person, or have I got to now hang up and call somebody? And so I sat on the, I stayed on the line for a good five or ten minutes, probably about five minutes thinking about it, and all I could hear was someone walking about in the room. And, and after a while, I just gave up. So that's my first actual, that's my second encounter with Sid, because I did actually speak to him after the Stars gig. Um, I went up to him. He was surrounded by. I remember he had a little coterie of beautiful women around him. I see him. I think one of them must have been Jenny Spires and and that you know the the Cambridge women, you know, Jenny Jenny Gordon, that lot. I remember he had these three absolutely glamorous, gorgeous women with him, you know. And I just went up and said thanks. Said it was great to see you again. And he smiled, you know, and said thank you. And and I didn't have anything else to follow it up with. I think I asked something really wanky, like. But you didn't do Wolfpack or something. I think I asked him, and he went, no. And that was it. <laughs> you yeah, know, what can you say to that? And then, of course, you just melt away because you haven't got anything left to say, you know. But what I do remember, because I don't want to fixate on the mental problems at all, but what I remember was the eyes. The eyes that everyone talked about, I remember those shell-shocked eyes. They told a whole other story, you know, because the, the, the smile was nice, and he was still a really good-looking guy. And he still looked every inch a pop star at that time as well. You know, he had his... Blue velvet trousers on and snakeskin boots and stuff, you know. But the eyes told a whole other story, you know. But that's how it was. It must. Be, it was through the agency circle, circle. And obviously, probably just trying to get him to talk, you know.
2: Because Twink's been when he did SF Sorrow was in to Twink because obviously the Twink was in Stars. He he was talking about the fact that Twink was perfectly normal, but then obviously a lot is written about the things weren't that so from what you saw live what was he like <clears> He <throat> was like plenty of early
1: 70s gigs i don't know if anyone has actually read that book but i go into detail about it in there and in fact i've written a self-published memoir since then that i put out during lockdown because there's no point trying to get in with pub- and publishers it's called all i want Is out of here which some of you might actually know where that title came from um And I go into full detail about it there in more detail than I can go about in that book because I give all the context leading up to it. Because me and my mate just happened to be in Cambridge for the afternoon and we went into Red House Records where we often used to hang out. And there was these little flyers on the counter and it just said stars. Monk Alder Barrett. And I mean, if I hadn't gone in that shop that day or if I hadn't stood at the counter and looked at flyers, I just went, is that Sid Barrett? And he goes, yeah. So we stayed in Cambridge and went to that gig that night and the ms uh stray played her. stray were on every gig you ever went to in the early sevens I remember stray, stray was the support band to every gig you went to and after that it was roy harper um but and then and then the mc5 came on and although they were past their sort of kick out of the jam's best they were still pretty fucking incendiary i mean they were punk rock five years before punk you know And of course, and then there was this gap of ages. Sid then was supposed to come on, but you're hanging around. It gets to about midnight. The gig went on till two in the morning. And of course, people start drifting out. People have got buses to catch or taxis or they want to get a burger off the burger bar in town, you know. All the reasons people drift away from gigs at that time of night. And there was only about 30 or 40 of us left by the time Sid came on. And they were okay. They were... It was a bit ramshackle, but like you know I saw the Edgar Broughton band and Hawkwind at their ramshackle peak. It was that was no big deal when you went to gigs then. Plenty of bands just jammed loosely, and you know, do you know what I mean? It wasn't choreographed, you know, sort of. You know what I mean? Um, and over the years, that gig's taken on mythical proportions, of course. And of course, all the myths have grown around it. And like, oh, he was totally untogether and and he was lost. He didn't know where he was. No, he played some lovely guitar at certain points. I remember they did an absolutely splendid version of Lucifer Sam. In fact, Lucifer Sam was tight. It was just like the record. So, but there's a lot of bollocks that's come out since then. You know, I suspect a lot of it from people who weren't even there. It was odd because it was so late. And I was at the front. I was wrapped. I mean, I was elbows on the stage at the front just looking up at my idol, you know. And it was only after a while when, I kid you not, they used to have a market in the Cambridge Corn Exchange the next morning on a Friday morning. And at one point, halfway through the gig, a guy trundled a market barrow across...
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not making this up. In fact, Roy Hollingsworth does mention this in his Melody Maker piece as well. And it was only at that point I turned around, like, what the fuck's that noise, you know, and realised, oh, Christ, there's only about 30 was left in here. There was a few people lined up against along the wall, I remember, and about a little gathering of about less people than there are in this room, actually, by the stage, you know. Of course, that gig's taken on all the, you know, mythical proportions over the years, but it was okay. It was ramshackle. There was a couple of very unformed blues. I remember he played one, of I them, mean, I don't know what that was called. I mean, I still remember, like, what he said, you know, because ter- ter- um, Terrapin Magazine, I mentioned to them, oh, by the way, I went to that gig. And, of course, they wrote back to me. This is still in the days we didn't have phones or anything. I mean, you know, I grew up in a council house. My dad was a toolmaker. I didn't have a phone the entire time I lived at home, you know. And so I wrote to him, you know, and he wrote back, oh, will you, re- will you review it? And I did while it was still fresh in my mind, which is why to this day you still see accurate set lists to what they played that night. And that's all down to me. And I'm not, do- I'm not just doing the big I am here, because it's like if I hadn't done that, you know, it's like some people do-, do credit me for that. And a lot of people, they just mention that as if that knowledge was always out there, you know. No, it's only because I had the foresight at 17 to actually write down what he played, you know.
2: And you mentioned blues. It, it's amazing to think of around 1965 when Pink Floyd were formed is that you kind of just had relatively routine R&B covers, although I do like Lucy Leave. But then a year or two later, you're going into long-form music and, and moving into psychedelia. What what created that that shift? Yeah, and he was reverting back to that when I saw him, of course, and he right. was, that's all he did in
1: those 74 sessions, didn't he? Yeah. Just yeah. It's pointless blues jams. Um, but, yeah, one minute they're doing play, they're playing R&B, and not very well either. Mm. It has to be emphasised. Now, the early Pink Floyd, they couldn't get arrested. They entered the Radio London Beat Competition. All the pirate stations used to run beat competitions. Mm. Melody Maker used to run an annual beat competition. They got rejections from all of them. They couldn't even get on the bills, you know. And when you hear those early, the ones that have just come out on that Cambridge Station box set, yeah. you know, Um they are fair, you, there's no spark there whatsoever of what they would become. And at some point between, when's the, when are they? They're 1965, I think, aren't they? And yeah. Sometime between them and mid-66, Sid just makes this quantum leap, lyrically, you know, musically, and just goes off into the stratosphere, you know? I suspect Acid had something to do with it, but not just totally, you know? Um... <clears throat> But there is, that in itself is unprecedented, and which is why I think, you know, coming round to the album we'll be talking about, it. I know you'll be listening to it tonight. <clears throat> that album, for all its faults, and it does, I do think it has some faults, um, it's actually the first time a track like Interstellar Overdrive, for example, had appeared on a rock album. Other psychedelic, psychedelic albums of that time, you know, the earliest ones like Traffic or the Incredible String Bands, nobody was doing those lengthy improvised. Um, jams that had more in common with the avant-garde than they did with, with any notion of rock music at that time. You had AMM doing their thing, you know, which Sid was hugely influenced by, right down to the fact that he started playing laptop guitar. You see that in that early clip of them, the um, Peter Whitehead clip of them doing Interstellar Overdrive. He's, he, he, does, he lays the guitar down on his lap, doesn't he, and starts playing. That's an art school thing. Keith Rowe told me all about that. He says, if you lay a canvas on the floor like Jackson Pollock did you have a whole other relationship with it than you do if it's up here, linear. And it's the same with the guitar. Your whole relationship with the body of that instrument changes. But that's Sid. He was foraging out there into the avant-garde. But he was... And, you know, I think Rick Wright was to a certain extent. The others, maybe not so much at that time, you know. But it is, it is an qu- absolute quantum leap. And as I say, I think it's unprecedented in English popular music at that
2: time. So when did the... Because uh, i we know a little bit about some of the long-form material. When did some of those short songs start appearing that that, that formed a, a good part of, of that album?
1: Well, they're there in the early sets. You right. do see um, there's an early set list of some of that stuff. He writes all that stuff, all those great songs that are on that first album. He writes all that, and the singles, the two singles and B-sides. He writes all that stuff in the space of about four or five months in from the late summer of 66 through to early 67. They're all written in a just this one incredible burst of, of, of creativity. And there's a clarity there as well. They're astounding, those songs. I mean, I could talk about Sid's songwriting all night, but just a simple line like, put on a gown that touches the ground, yeah. you know, it's just simple, but it blows you away with its simplicity. If you want to look for parallels for that, you do have to go back to your edward lears and your lewis carrolls and your Hilaire bellocks you know that's where you have to go back to for those kind of reference points nobody was writing like that his facility for words again i mean david gilmore said you know without hype he could have he should have been one of the great english songwriters he would have been right up there with lennon and mccartney and ray davis if it hadn't all gone wrong you know and i think that's absolutely true you know although i still love the songs even after he does start getting a bit yeah. rambly i still think they're still wonderful I wake up in the morning still thinking about certain lines and, you know, I do it all the time, not just because I worked on the lyrics book with David Gilmore, but I woke up the other morning thinking um, the line from Octopus about, please leave us here, close our eyes. And I thought, why us and not me? Why not please leave me here and close my... Uh, please leave us here, close our eyes. And I thought, nobody but nobody was writing lines like that in English pop music, nobody at all. People are either writing Urzat's kind of you know psychedelic flowers of my mind lyrics like Roy Wood was, and going God bless him, I love I love Roy Wood, I love yeah. the Move, yeah. but you know Roy Wood by his own admission didn't take acid, but he just took barometer readings from the two people in the band who did take acid. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, anyone who knows the Move will know which two people that yeah, was, and it wasn't Carl Wayne yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Beth Bevan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I must
2: ask you about bike because there's so many great lines in that and all in that sort of slightly sort of middle class accent as well but the lyrics of, of that are you know you're the kind of girl that fits in my world
1: yeah yeah come in yeah it's, a, it's an enticement isn't it yeah 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 you're the kind of girl that fits in what a beautiful slight thing to say to your girlfriend as well you know yeah come on come in come and join me in this world you know But, yeah, and I love all the qualifiers at the end of each line. Take a couple if you wish. That's so polite, (laughs) isn't it? You know, you don't have to, you know. I'm I'm not forcing these gingerbread men on you, you know. But, you know, he's a polite, upper-middle-class boy. That's what he is. I mean, Libby gave me access to all of her letters, all the love letters. And I remember getting on the train back from where she lives in Sussex, back up to London on the train. And I took out all these letters thinking, I'm going to be reading revelations here about, you know, yeah, I read amazing, a great book today and it's given me an idea for a song. But it's all just real regular 16-year-old gushy love stuff, you know. As any 16-year-old love-struck... Well, lust-struck boy would have written to his girlfriend at that time. You know, with lots of lovely little doodles as well, the drawings, they're all perfect. Perfect little, you know, a wretch goes to school with a with a runny nose and his satchel or whatever. You know, they're, they're beautiful, you know. Yeah, but it's... You know, it's just, you'll hear it when you listen to the album, every single one of those songs, Flaming, you know, Alone in the Clouds All Blue, you know, Lying on an Eiderdown, although I mishear some of them. I always thought he was singing um ram- Rambling by Telephone and It's Traveling by Telephone. I didn't know that. I hear Sid lyrics all the time. and I, lo- I love my mishears. I always thought it was, um um and the tune they play is an Aspen Pine and it's the tune they play is in Us Confide. And I've, go- I've Googled In Us Confide, trying to find a hymn. I, again, talking about this to Gilmore, you know, there's no hymn called In Us Confide. Where does he take that from? He was a great borrower as well, because he was an art student. Most of his techniques are borrowed from art. So he's pastiching. You know, he pastiches Hilaire Belloc in, well, the original version of um, Matilda Mother, isn't it? They actually used, there was a boy called Jim who was very fond of string, and they couldn't use those on the original version because the Belloc estate so he quickly had to write another you know there was a king who ruled the land and which again he takes from a nursery rhyme he still steals you know he's a great stealer Sid was he knew how to steal like all great artists steal you know you know average artists pastiche great artists steal and know how to steal and it's, it's an art school thing i don't know if anyone here went to art school but you learn all that as part of your conceptual framework you know, steal Monet Cezanne's apples or steal Monet's haystacks, but make them your own haystacks. Make them your own apples. You know? You, see, you know? See where I'm going with that? Yeah. You know?
2: At the same time, there's a bit of bite to some of the lyrics. Um, Arnold Lane, don't do it again.
1: Yeah, yeah, very moralistic, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you naughty transvestite. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, Yeah. a vegetable man's great for that. Why Uh. that couldn't have come out at the time? I mean, again, people say, oh, Peter Jenner's got this thing about that's a facet of Sid's madness and he is the vegetable man. No, he's taken the piss out of the whole pop process. You know, in my paisley shirt, I look a jerk, you know. Who else was going to be honest enough to sing like... Lennon might have been. Yeah. lennon would have done it but i can't think of anybody else you know but um yeah there's a, there's a very there's a very sardonic you know even on you know and a big band is far better than you you know, so, you know go away with your rubbish songs you know yeah very sardonic And you and again that comes across in the letters as well to libby there's a very sarky sense of humor you know but he was, he was those two things in some ways he was an innocent in some ways and he was, a came, he was a homeboy, he was a Cambridge homeboy, you know. There's that story Hester told me about, she's saying about, you know... She said, he said, what are you doing this weekend? And she says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going back to Cambridge to see my folks. And Sid just goes, I wish I was going back to Cambridge. And she said he looked so lost. He sat in the flat and he thought, he doesn't want to be here anymore. He doesn't want to be part of this pop scene. When Sid first got to London, him and David Gale, who we shared a flat with... They used to play a game where they walked around London and they would give themselves, they would award themselves points for each pop star they saw. So you know, you saw Petula Clark getting out of a, 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 a taxi, ten points. You know, you saw, you know, you saw Kenny Lynch signing an autograph outside the Palladium, two points. You know, whatever. You know, and they used to play this game. They were just so, you know, awestruck lads in London in the mid, right at the beginning of the real proper swinging sixties. You know, and here it all is happening. And three years later, it's like I wish I was going back to Cambridge. Something something goes, something something just goes in the head that doesn't want to be part of the pop scene anymore, you know. I don't think he can, he couldn't handle the discipline of pop. He couldn't handle the, right, tomorrow said we're playing a gig in Stockton, then, you, then it's over in um, Liverpool the next night, then you're coming back to London to do a Saturday club session, and it's like your life's all mapped. Suddenly, there's three artists who can work on his canvases whenever he likes. Yeah. Suddenly, he's got a routine. And I think that did his head in. You
2: Because know. that's the complete opposite of Robert Fripp. Because his whole sort of rationale was discipline.
1: I'd say it's probably the uh, the um, opposite of Roger Waters too. Right, yeah. Roger Waters had signed up for the, you know, we want to be pop stars now. They'd had to convince their parents they were going to make a go of it. They'd all got proper middle-class occupations up in, you know, they're all going to be art- good architectural boys and, you know. And suddenly you're having to go home and sell your... <laughs> your parents who have invested so much in you, never underestimate that whole upper-middle-class ideology that runs through those kind of people, you know? Sid's was different, because his parents said, oh, you know, Libby said, Sid would say, oh, I won't be back tonight, Mum, I'll be home tomorrow. All right, you are, Roger, you know, as he still was at home, you know. But Waters, no, no, we've come this far. We Don't fuck this up for us, Sid. Which I think is half the reason he was marginalised and in the end pushed out of the band, because he was acting up. And they didn't want someone acting up and, you know, um, spoiling yes. spoiling their best-laid plans, you know.
2: So, going back to, say, 67, you've got some amazing gigs. What... I mean, and you've got the light shows as well. Can you tell us a bit about some of those shows? I mean, would it be just one or two long-form pieces, or...? <clears throat> I think it would a lot of the time.
1: Even Even when they went out and played some of the municipal gigs, I think they still just played... I mean you got to remember like on those package tours you've got like 20 minutes each
2: yeah
1: you know so when they went out and did that one with Hendrix and Amen Corner Out Limits you know brilliant bill that is you know yeah. And, and yeah. was it the nice was it
2: uh, yeah the nice uh, their apparent yeah, Out of power. Limits
1: yeah
2: and what a line up
1: Out of Limits from up here aren't they
2: yeah, yeah Jeff Christie yeah yeah I
1: digress I love that Out of Limits single just one more chance
2: it's oh yeah Northern soul classic, that.
1: Yeah, Northern soul pop. Yeah, wonderful.
2: Yeah,
1: um, but the gigs. I mean, there were. So I think Sid lived for the light show because the light show took the emphasis off you. There was no traditional spotlights on you. You know, you could merge with the lights. And you, you notice Sid. He wasn't a flamboyant guitar player. On the clips you see of him, he wasn't one of those histrionic. He didn't throw shapes. You know, you don't. You don't see Sid doing the Hendrix. Well, Hendrix didn't do that that much actually. You don't see him playing the guitar. You know, you don't see him doing that at all it wasn't a Jeff Beck, you know, Jimmy Page and I think it suited him fine just to stand in the lights and all the kind of fractals and molecules and he could just stand there and, play, and he would play to the lights Pete Brown I remember telling me this, you would see Sid play to the light show, he would let the light show choreograph what he was doing sometimes when they had the freeform form freak outs, you know which is again, it's a great thing, you know, I think he, that's what he did, he walked into the light show and he loved it in there but then after a while, of course, all the light shows ended. It was the same with the West Coast bands, wasn't it? All those light shows, they just suddenly stopped. And it all went back to very traditional stage lighting, very showbiz lighting. Spotlight on the singer, Spot, you know, spots on, you know, light dim and bring them up for certain things. Very traditional lights. And I thought, I love light shows. I'm, I'm glad bands like, do you know a band called Broadcast?
2: oh yeah you we were yeah.
1: on Warp I, yeah. I saw them years. in about 2000 and yeah. they they'd got a fabulous light show and I just stood there watching thinking apart from Acid House which I went, went gung ho for when there was often light shows <laughs> <laughs> that's another night <laughs> <laughs> um, the, you know I thought why did these disappear why was there a period of 20 years whenever you went to see geeks nobody had those kind of light shows anymore they were a, they were an absolutely integral part of the sixty seven kind of movement of things, you know. Everyone had them. They even have them on top of the pops. I mean, you know. Yeah. That's all part of the
2: compromise. <laughs> there you go. Well that's a that's a useful segue in a way when you I don't know if compromise is the right word, but you've got some really fantastic live performances and then you've got the challenge of taking that into the studio to record an an album and, and you've got the move ultimately from joe boyd in the early years to norman smith so can you just kind of cover how they approached recording the album yeah
1: well i mean the first thing i say is i mean all these years later i'm i'm not a big fan of the production on the album and i I still can't figure out because norman smith obviously didn't get on with sid they had a real lot of troubles and um I remember Barry. You know, some of the real famous figures from the sixties have told me this. Hoppy told me this. John Hopkins, Barry Miles told me this. They said when the album came out, they sort of went. uh, I think Jenny Fabian thought the same as well. It's like, oh, it's it's a lot flatter. It's not like the gigs, is it? You know, they they. It all sounds a bit reined in. And if any of you have heard those uh, subsequent versions of Interstellar Overdrive that have turned up, there's one on YouTube, which is when a German film crew comes and does some tape, uh, tapes a, a night, a UFO. And you can hear them playing an amazing version of um, Interstellar in the background. Or there's the um, Peter Whitehead one. And there's another one on the Cambridge station. Uh, the, um, it's live in, I think it's, Rotter- it's either Rotterdam or Copenhagen. I can't remember which one. And again, it's an astounding version on there. And I get the impression, listening to that version, I mean, I love it, don't get me wrong, but it does sound very reined in for a studio production. And a lot of people said that. Miles said, he went, Oh, they've done the same as they did with the bloody first Grateful Dead album. They've made them sound when, when the first Grateful Dead album came out, I, I'm not a West Coast fan, I have to admit, but he said they made them sound like the bloody jug band they used to be, you know. And he and he said the same about that. He said that they're making a pop group out of them. This is a pop group production for a band where the sonics should be flying about all over the place, you know. And I tend to think that too, and I've always thought. Yeah, the Joe Boyd production on, on um, Arnold Lane, and particularly the B-side, Candy and a Curran Bun, I mean, oh, that just yeah. crackles. Yeah, That still, to me, is the best recording of all those. And a lot of people have said that. I mean, I have spoken to Joe Boyd a few times, and he's um, you mm. know talking about a new Beyoncé film, and James, and oh, we're off then, you know. Oh, my. <laughs> Lightning Hopkins in 1958, <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 you know. Uh, yeah, finally got him to talk. But I do, you know, I, I do agree with that. I think the production on Arnold Lane and Candy and a Current Bun, in particular the B side, is much more indicative of how they must have sounded live at the time. Yeah. Having said that, it's great. I love it. And I mean, if I am sort of running through anything as a resume, things to listen for, you know, when you listen to it, I always think the very last track, and take up by stethoscope Steth- and Walk, is very underrated. Not many people talk about that track. It never gets written. About, I mean, it's supposed to be a Roger Waters competition uh, com- composition. The um, the title would suggest it is. It's got that self conscious wackiness that, you know, he was. I always thought he was a bit self conscious in his kind of titles, you know. So take up like Seth, so that That's Waters, obviously. But Sid's guitar playing on that track. It's like, it's, I think it's about two and a half minutes that track, and that that is Sid in full Bo Diddley on acid mode. That's brilliant. And there's that little bit. Just before it goes back into the last vocals, where you hear Sid do that kind of yeah, he does that yelp. There's just a sudden yelp you hear, you know, and that, that's Sid in the moment. Do you know what I mean? That that and that that in a way, that's actually one of the best moments on the album. That's where it really catches fire. But you know, when people play stuff off that, it's, that's probably one of the last tracks anyone you know you never hear it on the radio or even on LP radio, you know, or internet stations. But I think that's a phenomenal track. That is actually. Um, i don't like i don't like the version of gnome they recorded because they bring up too much of the twee element you know of the you know that is the worst aspects of psychedelic you know i met a little gnome sort of stuff you know <laughs> and that, all, the, all the people who hate psychedelia hate it for that reason all that stuff you know and you know, people over pronouncing their o's you know and all that <laughs> sort of stuff you know but when you hear the version of that on the first pill session they do the first top gear session it's it's, it's a tad slower they take it at a slightly slower lick and it makes it much more of a folk song. Sid sounds a bit wasted singing it, which also helps actually it's quite nice because it's got a slightly more far away quality to so the kind of oh let's go and hang out with the gnomes you know it's a much you know and it's like I want to tell you, I can just about tell you a story you know and it's 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 lovely you compare that if you 've got access to the first pill session from they did two in 67 didn't they there's the christmas one with the scream my last scream on it and uh, and there's that one so that's a better version but i mean other stuff Luke's for sam to me is still an utter stounder. Yeah. i don't think you can ruin that song it's impossible to ruin it you know even then i used to, I, didn't, I used to think it was ginger gentle you're a witch i didn't think he apparently singing jennifer gentle you're a witch because it's written for Jenny jenny squires uh, jenny yeah jenny squires and um I still can't hear how he crams that many syllables into it. It still sounds like Ginger Gentle to me. You know somebody do you tell me afterwards whether you think he's singing Ginger Gentle or Jennifer Gentle. But you know. But um but it is what it is and it's unprecedented as as a record at the time. There's no other sixty seven psychedelic album, not made in Britain anyway, because I mean Hendrix's first two albums have that sort of stuff. Well, they were made in Britain, weren't they? Yeah. Um, Hendrix is the only one but he had to come from overseas to do it and Frank Zappa's doing it over there Cream were even Cream are sort of doing even their little blues songs on the first Cream at Fresh Cream they're still like three minutes aren't they they're still reined in there's no real eight minute ten minute and the Stones have done that long track haven't they um, on one of their early albums but that's just a stodgy blues jam that's just yeah going on that's just a blues jam isn't it you know so, you know, nobody had sounded like that. There's no precedent for Interstellar Overdrive and astron- astronomy-dominant at the time.
2: So you mentioned that perhaps six-month period, This, in terms of writing much of the material, which was obviously before they recorded it, where you, you could make a case for Sid being at his peak. But then when you read about the recording, and then obviously as you move into after the album's released and some of the tours... There's, a, there's quite a significant difference of opinion on what Sid was actually like. Do you get a feel for kind of... What, well, I mean, on
1: tour? Yeah. Because well, he was acting up a bit, wasn't he? Well, yeah, I was chatting about it with this man here before we went on. There was... Because Nick Mason, has he brought out that book... Was it called Sourceful of Secrets? <coughs> Nick Mason's book. No, it's all called Inside Out, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. And then there was another version of it, came out a year or two later, and it says amended or whatever. And I noticed he's included a couple of my bits from Irregular Head. And one of the bits he's included was, at the time he says, oh, and Sid was just detuning his guitar on stage. Well, he's doing that on that Peter Whitehead footage from late 66. Avant-gardeners were doing that regularly. They were all doing that, you know. And um, But he says, you know, oh, and we didn't know what to make of him. He was just making the guitar strings all loose. But in the, when he does the follow-up to that, he says, we re- I think we recognise later that it's, he was making a kind of art statement, which we weren't, and he freely admits, you know, we, we weren't on his plane, we weren't on his level. I think Rick was to a certain extent, but I don't think Roger Waters and Nick were at all. Having said that, I'm really like i I'm not, I'm not going to diss um, Nick Mason, because I think he was the perfect drummer for Pink Floyd.
2: In the you can hear it there. In, in, yeah, in, yeah. yeah, and
1: in the same way that Ringo was the perfect drummer for the Beatles, you know, Pink Floyd wouldn't have suited a kind of a Keith mooner or a Mitch Mitchell, you know, or indeed a, or a Robert Wyatt. It wouldn't have sounded a kind of busy, clattering Tyro. He's And he could do the Bo Diddley as well. He could do the... He could do that on the Toms. He could play the Bo Diddley as well as anyone else. And I think Nick Mason's, you know... Whatever faults there are, there he was, you know, he was the perfect drummer for them. You can't have everyone freaking out, you know, <laughs> because Sid and no, seriously, because if you listen to Interstellar Overdrive, that interplay between Sid and Rick on, um, on, on, um, sorry, on, yeah, on Interstellar Overdrive, the bit where it all breaks down in the middle and it just goes down to like virtually Morse bleeps, doesn't it, you know, that's incredible. The little interplay between Sid and Nick there again, nobody but nobody was doing that in English rock music. None of those bands who had suddenly gone from R&B to, to you know, psychedelia like, you know, Traffic or Eric Burden and the New Animals or any of that lot, none of them were sounding like that at all. None of them were going that far out with it, you know. But on, 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 on tour, again, it's just the touring. He just got sick of it, didn't he, you know?
2: Because they, they, went, they went to Europe after the album was released. Was that right?
1: I can't remember. I'm I'm, I'm not really tour itinerary guy. I'm not really, (laughs) you know. But then there's a
2: trip to the States and then...
1: Yeah, and there's that, you know, the famous footage of where they do uh, apples and oranges, don't they, on the um, Dick Clark show. And they ask him all these inane questions before that, you know, beforehand. And on that, the original myth was, oh, and he wasn't moving his lips. But you see him in the first verse and he's lip-syncing the whole thing. And if you've ever tried lip-syncing the first verse of apples and oranges... You know, got a flip top pack of cigarettes in my pocket, feeling good at the top shop in the shop. She's walking, and it's that—that's the acid momentum. She's walking, you know. Yeah. So it's all da 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 da, and then oh, off we go somewhere else. You know, we're going down the park, feeding the ducks now. You know, and he's—he's he's doing it. He does that perfectly. On, you know, they cut away from him at certain points, don't they? to grinning Roger Waters and grinning and grinning Nick. But see, you know, anyone who's read the book or gets a copy of that tonight, you'll know that. I am Mythbuster general. I mean, I, I grew up... I saw all the myths develop, you see. I saw it from Nick Kent's original article about, you know, the mandrakes and broil cream in the hair. And then you see different versions of the myth. And, and over the years, as as with all rock-and-roll myths, they grow legs, don't they? After a while, you think, oh, they've added that bit now, have they? You know, you know and it starts off with, you know, Marianne Faithful and the Mars Bar, you know, which never happened. <laughs> which never happened. But it's in some news of the world perverts' interest... You know, to say yeah, because this is what they were all up to, in the rock and roll world. You know, and it's the same with Sid. All oh, right, Sid went mad. Oh, he must have rubbed mandrax and broil cream in his hair. You know, as Doggy Field said to me, Nick wouldn't have, um, um, Sid wouldn't have wasted good mandrax. You know, <laughs> 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 which sounds to
2: me a perfectly logical answer. <clears throat> so when when did they get Dave Gilmore in uh, as a an addition, given that to the band? sid wasn't there yeah, talk
1: well before he, in fact sid, right. sid wants him to join early on in fact again i keep mentioning Libby's letters but it's one of those where she says oh you know fred should be here doing this because his nickname was fred and then you need to get fred in you know and um again hester page told me this lovely boy turned up at the flat one day and said sat on the edge of my bed That this is when because you see pictures of dave gilmore in early sixty-seven, he's quite a dish, isn't he? You know, and he was—he worked for one of the top boutiques, didn't he? And um, and um, Hester said, "Hello, who's this?" You know, in my bedroom, you know. And, um, and he said, "Oh, I've, I've, apparently, I'm I'm joining the band, apparently." But this was months before he did, and months months before it was originally yeah. announced. So I think they had him lined up from the late summer, right. yeah. And as far as I can tell, they you know they did those five gigs after Christmas, didn't they? Then it you know it worked for a couple, then it stopped working. But I, it would have been, I know it's a what if, maybe, and all the rest of it, but I think it would have been lovely if Dave, if it had stayed. I still have those kind of little fantasies, we all do it, where you make your own little tapes and you listen to the tracks off the Barrett solo albums and think, you know, yeah, Dominoes, that would have sounded lovely on the side too about Heart mother, you know, or, do you know what I mean? And there's several tracks from those solo albums which would have slotted in just fine imagine how good the live side of i gummer would have been you know if sid would have still been with with them you know or indeed sid's own solo 15 minutes you know that would have been something um but uh yeah he was he was invited i think because they're a close-knit community that cambridge lot a lot of them still are i got a real sense of that when i did all the interviews for the book most of them still know each other very few of them have ever fallen out with well roger waters has fallen out with everybody no, <laughs> no i mean he just has okay. i've got time just to tell you a quick yeah, yeah. ron geeson story because yeah. yeah. i went and interviewed ron geeson sometime for well, one time for a piece for mojo about his involvement you know because he did the orchestration on them at Amar mother and he said oh he said every, i think roger's realizes now he's pissed everybody up he said what happened was he said um roger sent me um a package a while ago and it was his new album and he said, and no, I undid it, and there was nothing in nothing in the sleeve. There was a sleeve and no record in there. He says, so I sent him a jokey letter back and with a photograph saying, Here's the new Roger Waters album. It's um complete forty-five minutes of silence or something. Just a joke a jokey little letter, you know, a jokey letter. Obviously meant as a joke. Oh, he gets this shitty phone call from Waters, you know what do you mean what do you mean you know the usual paranoid opening you know and (laughs) and in the end Ron Geese said to me he said in the end I was like you know what Roger fuck it and just put the phone down and he said and that was the last involvement he ever had with him and he said in recent years in recent this was I'm talking about in the 90s you know when they did the live aid thing together and all came together with the the very forced arm around each other you know on stage because they've fallen out again by the way there is what you know as you know if you read twitter or social media
2: oh twitter recently that know that
1: waters and gilmore thanks to polly Polly, thanks to polly mays um samson are as far apart as they have ever been you know but then indeed i don't know what your feelings are about roger waters but he appears to be as fucking mad as he ever was (laughs) (laughs) a a certain national treasure rock star and i am not gonna admit who he was just looked looked leaned in conspiratorially to me one day and he went, you know what, Rob? He goes, Sid wasn't the mad one in that band. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't I can't for the life of me reveal who that was, but it's someone, it's someone who's now a veritable national treasure, right? Said that. And I tend to think that as well, you know, one or two people said that over the years, yeah. Sid wasn't the mad one in that band. Is How any of that going on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> you know you'll fucking come for me, don't you? <laughs> There'll, there'll, there'll be fucking tweets, 27,000 likes, the lot, <laughs> pile on. Does anyone follow me on Twitter?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah I'll see, I'm Scribbler on Twitter if you, wanna, if you want more of this kind of stuff every day. Uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's 45 minutes have just gone by like that, so right. <laughs> absolutely wonderful. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. Um, yeah, we'll have a comfort break, but first of all, a rapturous applause for these two, please. Thank you. <laughs> After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a and a
2: Maybe just one question before we go to audience q and I still thought the album sounded pretty, well, brilliant, brilliant. Um, it, it sounds amazing. great
1: loud, yeah. In a, in a loud room with big speakers. Yeah, brilliant, yeah. yeah. All the dynamics. Plus, you know, they've done some good job of the re, uh, with the um, repressions yeah. and that, haven't they? Sitting out there, I was thinking just how good Rick Wright sounds on it now. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And the bit I mentioned when I said about Take Up Those Sets ago, Go, because that's the fastest thing they ever did. They never did anything as fast as that ever again. And I was listening to the middle bit and that bit where Sid and, Sid and, um, and Rick just go off and riffing... I never realised for now how much Rick, what Rick's doing. Reminds me of um, Sister Ray by Velvet Underground. Mm. That's like a real sort of middle of Sister Ray kind of John Cale hammering away at the keyboard. It's
0: very John Cale.
1: I never. I sat out there thinking, Christ, that's Sister Ray. Never noticed that before in my life.
0: Worth yeah, worth coming to Pontefract just for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> can, I, can I just quickly read you my tweet? Yeah. This, I, this is a, a you know Dominic Ravi. Got um, Paul Grade his name wrong, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Twat, you know? <laughs> so I just, so I just, I just did a riff on that, and I just put everybody talking about rabbis and shaggers and baggers and Mary Grace and Perry Mason, Grace and Perry, Burnley Market. I mean, Berry Market. Paul O'Grady, Tommy Cooper, Tommy Smothers, Tory Chances, Rabbis and Popeyes and bye-byes. It's a drag. It's a rab, Oh, we are saying. <laughs>
0: Um, Richard, you were very said something interesting earlier. Um, it was about Uma Guma. Um Did I know David Gilmore had adjo- joined by that point? Did, but did the sort of the sort of transition happen by that point?
1: I it in the sense that yes, they were gone. still playing the same sort of psychedelic kind of. Well, they're still doing Interstellar and Astronomy, Dominant,
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because they're both on the like. The oh on the light yeah, are out they, there. Yeah. Yeah, they're still they're still yeah. playing that stuff. I think they drop them soon after that. I think it, I think it was Roger Waters who insisted on that sea change, wasn't it? Where he said, "I'm I'm sick of doing all this space rock, you know." He actually said that, didn't he? Yeah. And I've got all these ideas for concepts, you know, which you know,
0: like Echoes. You mean like For Metal, which were Yeah, rich. They, they, and
1: so they they tried to make a long form work for the first time, didn't they? Which first go at it was Echoes. See, my take on that is like after a while, <clears throat> they they've got this idea of this thing they wanna do. It's like a logic puzzle they're trying to solve, you know. And and they and they have a go at it in this Echoes. Well their first one is um I think Capital Acts you know Adam Hart Mother is the first go at it. And then they try it again with Echoes and then with Dark Side of the Moon it's almost like they've solved an equation. It was all leading up to doing Dark Side of the Moon, that phase of them, you know. I think I, I think Dave Gilmore said at one point, you know um, we, you know, we probably should have split up after that. Or wish we, you were here, because like we'd done everything we were gonna do as a cohesive unit, and after that it kind of fragments a bit, and they start falling out. Yeah. But I've always seen it like that because they, because they were architecture students as well, and they did used to like map stuff out. They were very logical in the way they approached stuff, in a way that Sid wasn't. You know, that was the opposite yeah. of Sid's approach. You know, and so that's how I've thought of it for years. It was this logic puzzle they were trying to solve. And in the end, they solved it and they called it Dark Side of the Moon. And that's it. they have done it all by them, really.
0: <laughs> no, no, really, you know. My other question was, um, do you think Sid got famous and didn't like the limelight and that's why he sort of shied away from it or
1: not? Well, yeah, that's kind of... My, my take is, oh, I mean, obviously this shed loads of acid you were doing didn't help but i don't yeah. you see i've never been a believer i don't want to get too deeply into the no. morality of drugs thing but i've never been a believer in the one trip set them over the edge thing i don't believe it of peter green either i think there must be deeper more fundamental psychological things there of which acid was just a catalyst and probably didn't help in the long run but i don't think it was the only factor i don't want to get I, I don't want to get into amateur psychology no. you know psychology no. yeah. do you know what i mean I'm sick of all the people who do, but it's the same with Peter Green. I don't buy that story. Oh, he took that one trip that time in that dreadful party in Scandinavia, where it was. Isn't it? No, there was obviously deeper underlying. You know, there are, I've known people who should never have gone anywhere near an acid tab. You know, that's you know, who are mentally fragile. And I do make it clear in the book. I mean, because one or two people said I give Sid an easy ride, but I don't. I I give clear instances of the of, of times when he was abusive to women, physically abusive. And there were witnesses who saw it, and I quote all that in the book, you know. And I do actually say that he did have lifelong problems, you know, that never went really went away. He came to terms with certain things. I just don't think they happened as quickly as people say they did. He was still a fully functioning individual for some time. The real loss period is when he goes into Chelsea Cloisters. He moves in there in about 1974. And then, you know, he ends up going back to Cambridge in 1980. And those are the lost years. That Those are all you get then is sightings people seeing him walking around the street or whatever you know he disappears and Storm and Poe went to see him to try and get him to get some photographs for that reissue of the you know the uh, the um, solo albums and he wouldn't answer the door or he just told him to fuck off you know those are the lost years that's when it all does go seriously whatever's going on there that's when he start. that's when he flips you know during that long long period you know but again I think it's gradual it often is it's a gradual breaking down, you know. But it, it's just sad. It's just a sad story. It's a terribly sad story. Storm before he died. There's this new film coming out soon called "Have You Got It Yet," which Storm was working on before he died. And I, you know, and I, I I'm, pro- I think I'm still in it, unless I'm on the cutting room floor by now. But I think I, I may, I may have survived the cut. I don't know, but I am in it. And. um I went to see storm because storm wouldn't give me an interview for that book he's sending me some lovely emails which i've still got but he said you know it's too painful for me rob i can't talk about it and every time he said to me why didn't the family do more to help why didn't people do more to help and storm's whole thing was why did not nobody step in people people didn't make interventions then you know and in and in the late 60s early 70s that's that kind of aspect of hippiedom which i really don't like There's the kind of That kind of very squalid liberalism, where hey man, he's doing his thing, you know, and it wasn't cool to intervene, was it? You know, hey man, you know you're stepping into his space there. Well, you know, maybe if someone had intervened, maybe maybe some people had just taken him in hand and got him off to see somebody, you know? Do you know what I mean? Wasn't cool to say that in the 60s, was it? Late 60s, early 70s. Wasn't keen to make value judgments at all, was it? And during that period, you know. It's one of the more... It's a kind of debased liberalism. It's not proper liberalism at all. It's, it's a kind of debased form of, hey, man, just let him do his thing, work his things, mentally going down the pan, you know. That's my feelings, anyway.
0: Any other questions?
1: Alan, have you got one?
3: I only have one, uh, Sid. <clears throat> um, story. Uh, Phil and I uh, used to go... Well, we still do go to the Cambridge Folk Festival every year. And um, one year, there was a little bit of cock-up with the um, guest house, and we stayed with a different guy, and he was a a retired Bobby. And um, we started talking about music and the connection with Cambridge. And we mentioned Sid Barrett, didn't we? And um, he said, oh, I was always round at their house... And I thought, well, we said we didn't know that Sid was such a tearaway. It says, oh, no, it wasn't him, it was his mother. Can you shed any light on that?
1: No, this is totally new to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got stories that weren't in the book, some of which I, you know, I've never made public, you know, because I was told one or two things from inside the family and from one or two people who saw him in Cambridge later on in the later years um, that left you in no doubt that he was not in a particularly good mental state but they're not for public consumption, because I'm not from the news of the world, do you know what I mean?
3: I just wondered if but it may I be... I've never heard that at all. It may have been, with the. you was just alluded to the fact that uh, there was a lot of people coming round to the house uh, and, you know, um, pestering. It, she may have just called the cops in all the time just to try and get rid of those, I don't know.
1: Oh, you but mean when he's out at Cherry Hinton, yeah, not yeah. when he's still in It was near Cherry, because yeah, that's yeah. where we were staying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he was in St Margaret's Street, where it was called St Margaret Square, Yeah. yeah. Um, don't know any I, of that. She did. Well, she did move out in the end, and Sid left Sid in there on his own. Right. But that's because he was unbearable to live with, because he was, you know, because he was, he, he was, he was quite dodgy, you know, by then.
3: Yeah.
1: You know. Okay. But I've never heard any of that. There's always new. This is the thing. My book's not the final word. Do you know what I mean? Because there's, I still hear new stories to this day. You know, from people. You know. And particularly the later years in Cambridge, you know, from people who saw him out and about. So, yeah.
0: Jodie, you've got a question? Full of yourself, now that you've won the the
1: second prize. Um, Am I allowed to ask you a question that's a bit off-topic? Do I sound like the kind of guy... (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> he stuff um, on top of Am I allowed to press you a little bit more about seeing the MC5? About the what? About seeing the MC5, because, um, I mean, I just think they're the greatest band of all time. Oh, what? Um,
2: MC the MC5. Five.
1: Oh, the MC5. Oh, right. <laughs> am I allowed to ask you? Uh, that th- <laughs> at that time, yeah, um, when they played that Cambridge gig, this is after the 1970s sort of Detroit kick-out-the-jams period, um, and all the, and the and the White Panthers and all that politically, and I think at that time they were being managed by Ronan O'Reilly, who had previously been the founder of Radio Caroline, and he was looking after them. And later on, after that, course they were they were managed for a brief period by Malcolm McLaren, weren't they? Know, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, like I say, at that time, what I remember about them that night, they were ferociously loud. That should have been the end of the night, really. Or Sid should have played maybe before them, you know. Because it was kind of hard for him to come on after that, and as I say, <laughs> there was this incredible delay of at least half an hour, probably an hour before he came on, you know. What, what, what were people like in the audience? Or was everybody your, your normal Cambridge crowd. I hung about a lot, in, a lot of my misspent youth was misspent in Cambridge in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. I used to go to free concerts in Grandchester Meadows. That, that I never see mentioned anywhere, even on some of these websites that meant you know talk about festivals. There'd be these impromptu little festivals in came in Manchester Meadows. It was a great place to hang out. I mean, there was there's the kind of town and gown things. You know, you know what I mean by that. The split between the university students and people who actually live there. And some of the estates on the edge of town were you know pretty rough. You know, there's some rough council estates on the edge of Cambridge which you don't think of in terms of all the Dream Inspires and all the rest of it. I know know that's Oxford, but, you know. Um, So you've got a real mixture of stuff there. But the thing I love about the central Cambridge, it hasn't... Apart from that horrible new shopping centre they put up in the 80s, it hasn't significantly changed since, like, 1670. You know, those narrow little streets that aren't made for traffic, you know, which is why they've got a park and ride system there now, you know, uh, because it's impossible to get round there by car. And... Yeah, I used to have a whale of a time um, I'm not plugging my books but if you go onto my website there's two um, self-produced memoirs I put out one of which is called Lib Repeat to Fade which I was, lo- I was so happy to see somebody come up and want me to sign earlier and that's about my three act life but the other one is called All I Want Is Out of Here does anyone know where that title comes from? All I Want Is Out of Here any David Allen and Gong fans in the room? The track on it's a track on banana moon but it also summed up my life at 17 you know all i want is out of here because i grew up in a small town working class kid and i just wanted out of that environment you know and so that book is about a year in my life in 1972 when i went let's call it off grid um they call them gap years now you know it's felt more like a gap life at the time but you know but and i and i talk a lot about the cambridge i knew then because i used to go there all the time and it was a it was a fascinating place in the early seventies. I can remember you could still. This was a time when it sounds a bit glib now and a bit almost too good to be true, but you recognised other people like yourself, and you could go up to total strangers and talk to them. I mean, I remember going up to this guy in the street because he looked cool as fuck, and I said, you know, do you know what's happening with Sid lately? You know, and he didn't know he didn't know. I remember being in a pub later on when I'd gone back to college when I got my act together. And we're talking about Sid, and this guy at the bar, just typical old guy, and he's like, old guy. He's probably must have been in his late, at least his late thirties. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this, this old guy. You know, and he overheard us. He said, "Oh, you, know, are you interested, Barra?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, I, I taught Sid at um, Tech College. he taught him on his foundation course, and you didn't have to go far in the early seventies to meet somebody who either knew Sid, or knew of him, or was a friend of a friend of, because it's the the actual centre of Cambridge the scene was very very small I used to go to those um, gigs at um, uh, what was it called now Um, it was the mission hall it was a a catholic mission hall and um, Jack Monk who was the bass player in Stars with Sid and Twink was the drummer and he used to put on these regular jam session nights there Tuesday nights it was like it was like it was still like the arts lab ideal from the 60s it wasn't quite the arts lab anymore because that had kind of been and gone but it was still you know band orientated and i went there a few times and i saw i saw hatfield and the north there before they were hatfield and the north it was a loose conglomerate of the miller brothers and um and pip pile and, and one or two stray gongs were there and, um um blundy bad de grass and you know didier Herb, the sax player and they would all get up on stage and jam. It's like members, whoever was around. I think Gong was still in the country because they'd been touring that brief tour they did with Kevin Ayers when Kevin Ayers joined them. I don't know if anyone ever saw those gigs. But the reason it took me so long to get into Hawkwind, I've re- kind of repented about Hawkwind. I, for years, I ignored them. I, di- I dismissed them as not as good as Kraft, as not as good as Krautrock, you know. And I had them down as a second-rate Krautrock band. I repent. I mean, I have come to terms with my folly, you know.
2: (laughs) In fact, I repented
1: in public on Twitter. I'm sorry, I was wrong about Hawkins. They're fucking brilliant, you know. (laughs) It's just that it's taken me 30 years to realise that, you know. But, um, so where was I going with
2: that? (laughs) No,
1: Gong. And And the reason, the reason, the other reason I held off for so long was I saw Gong at their absolute peak again those albums that P- pothead pixie trilogy they did and when steve Hillis joined that was nothing's like as good as the the gong who came over in late 71 they were phenomenal i mean and J- kevin Ayers joined for a while they really were they were the best space rock i've ever heard and again it wasn't re- re- the only place i've ever seen it really kind of captured was does anyone know the glastonbury triple album that came out do you know the side with gong on there's a, there's a side that is just all gone because uh, they played that Glastonbury uh, seek it out on Twitter if you, if you haven't got it, seek it out on Google it's on there, because he calls it Gladstone Buried Feet in the something or other, it's got a long title check that track on there because that is the nearest they were to when I heard them in late late seven, 71, you know you make all these, you're very factional when you're 17 18 aren't you, you're kind of like either or aren't you you know I mean I had no trouble like in the Isley Brothers and Faust I like soul music and I like kraut rock but I did dismiss a lot as a result you know I was very factional and some of that it's only years later you think no they were really fucking good weren't they you know and I, I mean you've probably got idea, uh, examples of your own haven't you where it took you years and you thought oh right now I get it you know a mate of mine used to play me Laura Nyro records all the time in the early 70s I just thought, God, she's got no soul, has she? And she doesn't swing at all, you know? <laughs> and then one night it just clicked. You know, I just thought, she's a genius, isn't she? Yeah. Miles Davis thought she was a genius, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I thought, oh yeah. Sometimes it just takes that light bulb moment, doesn't it, years later, when it clicks, and you think, oh yeah, I was wrong. I was young, I was foolish.
0: Any more questions? <laughs> I would just like to mention that I think we touched on this, this this explosion that was going on in in 1967, and 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 it was incredible, really, isn't it? The, the the stuff that was happening there with Velvets and and the psychedelic. It, it's and we were likening it to 1959 in, in in the year that that where jazz just went berserk, didn't it, with Brubeck and Hornet Coleman and Miles Davis and. Um, and uh, Mingus and what have you, and I—I um, I could hear some of that. To me, I, I got that feeling listening to this album, and and the stuff that was going on in two in '67, comparing it to 1959, and then we were saying then or a decade later, then you've got the punk. It seems incredible—it's only what ten years after what this album we've we've listened to now. The old the world's up in uproar about Johnny Rotten and. And I don't know what I'm talking about now, but I, I, <laughs> there was a question. There
1: was a question. There's a question in there Rick, somewhere. Rick, but... well, Rick was really into jazz, of course. Rick had oh, the God. jazz ah, Rick had the jazz licks. And again, yeah. as I said, sitting down there signing those books, the thing, I kept stopping and thinking, God, that Rick bit there, that's brilliant. I mean, he, even his little bits of orchestration on things like Chapter 24, you know, yeah. which is taken from the I Ching, that's Sid borrowing directly the lyrics from the I Ching. And that and Scarecrow, you know, his... What, I don't know what it is, he plays on Scarecrow, right? some kind of reed organ thing, you know, he's not playing the far fister that he plays on stuff, and again, it's beautiful. Rick was a wonderful musician. I remember somebody said to me, says very cruel this, and I don't I don't hold with it either, but he said, he said, Pink Floyd are dying in the wrong order, aren't they? You know, and I don't, I don't you know, I, know it's, I, don't, I don't hold with it, it's dodgy, but I kind of knew, isn't it sad that it's Sid and Rick that have gone, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think Rick, Rick was unfairly treated
1: as well? No. Yeah, and it led to his alcoholism as well. I mean, he ended, yeah. up, a, he ended up a psychological wreck after that. David Gilmour said, Mark Blake, Mark some of you may know, he writes about Pink Floyd. Mark said to me once, he said, um, he was interviewing David Gilmour for one of his Floyd books, I think, that Pigs Will Fly book that Mark wrote. And he said, oh, I'm off to see Rick in a bit, uh, tomorrow. And uh, David said to him, when are, you, when are you going to see him? He said, oh, in the morning, 11 o'clock. And uh, David goes, Oh, you should be alright then, eleven o'clock, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah. You let, you get, the people used to say saying about fifth Stanshaw, you know, you get Viv eleven in the morning, you'll be alright. Get by five o'clock, forget it, you mm. know. And that was the same with Rick by then, he was drinking heavily, you know. And it's, it's really sad, he, and you know, after Sid had left, they, again it's the bullying aspect of Roger Waters, they start picking on they start picking on Rick. He became the fall guy.
2: What well, are always a control fleet? Say again. Was he always the control freak in that, that
1: man? I think so, yeah. Yeah. See, his, his mother was a wonderful woman. His mother was a... She only died when she was about 95, 96. She was a lifelong communist. You know, Mary, Mary Waters was a lifelong communist. She taught them at junior school. This is the other thing about how close-knit they all were. Mary Waters taught Sid and Roger at junior school. You know, who was it said to me... Um, the original guitarist, um, um, Robert uh, Close. Um, Bob, Bob Close. Close, yeah. Bob Close said to me, when I first went to school, he said, I had to sit next to, um, it wasn't Storm, because Storm was sent to that trendy school, wasn't he? Um, he was sent down to that one in the West Country, where you make up your own rules.
2: Not Steiner.
1: Yeah, um, it's not Steiner, it's um, D- part Dartington, whatever it's called. It was sent down there, wasn't it? Um, it's that Lord of the Fly stuff, that school. <laughs> Now the stories of it. There was a documentary once. They go about killing squirrels and stuff. It's like all they needed was piggy and a conch, you know. <laughs> Jeez. But he said, you know, I had to sit. I, I had to sit next to one. I can't remember which one it was now. And it was like, up I'm sitting next to you. These are kids who sat at the same table at junior school, and they're, and they're all. This is why most of them are still speaking now. And of course, there's also the working class ones, the, the working class lads. Um. Um forgotten their names now one of them who named Amagama because that was his that was his local slang for shagging you know and when i think thinking of him, Ian Moore Emo he was called wasn't he Emo Moore because his, his initials were I-M-O and so he was known as Emo and there was him and another guy they were off the council estates and they but they, as you know as, as the rest told me they could hold their own you know they could hold their own in conversation and in the, you know and they could keep up with the drugs and and all the rest of it and they were the real working class like spirits on there emo's on that website i've just joined it actually i've only just gone on facebook after all these centuries i've just f- finally gone on facebook and i've joined that one um what's it called birdie hop and uh, emo's on there he puts lots of lovely pictures up on there of like you know Sid. If, you, if you're not on that site worth joining it just to see emo's lovely pictures of sid and he's got some lovely ones of you know sid's girlfriends there's Lindsay corner um the model. And then there was um, Gayla later on, the one that it all ended very badly. You know, he had the breakdown after they, they were going to get engaged. And there's a, he put up a beautiful picture of them in their fifties and sixties now and... Fuck, they've aged well. You know, God, they look... Honestly, they're really two beautiful, stunning women for their age, you know. They have contributed to the um, doc. Um, when I was originally writing the book, one or two people said to me, you've got to get the women, you've got to get the women to talk and I did my level best and I did get women who hadn't talked before you know a few you know but I couldn't get Lindsay because Sid was abusive to her Sid was physically abusive to her you know she had a really bad experience with him she ended up, She did alright she married a stockbroker you know, and she was, you know <laughs> she's alright now she looks wealthy as well you know but yeah go on the Birdie Hop website and just put in Lindsay Corner and Girl Opinion P-I-N-I-O-N and you'll see Emo's pictures of them like later on you know
3: yeah, it's um, The Wind in the Willows. I was going to ask you why The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Now, I know it's a very strange chapter in The Wind in the Willows, it's that particular the, chapter. The, yeah. um, we were just wondering whether it was set in the Cambridge offence.
1: No, um, uh, yeah. no. Um, I, I was know it's his favourite
2: book. Kenneth, I...
1: Kenneth Graham hmm. was abandoned by his parents very early on, and he grew up with an auntie down in Cookham in Kent, oh. and he based it all on the woodlands. Right, here. It's in the book. Mm. it's all in there ah. yeah because I, I, I do that because you have to go back to those people you know and their little world they create yeah that is the chapter where his pan the pantheism comes mm. out isn't it the love yeah. of nature yeah. and it's the whole pantheistic thing that comes out
2: yeah it's so far removed from Maul and Ratty it's untrue isn't it? This yeah, one, isn't it it is
1: it's a little chapter on it's own yeah. isn't it it's like the last episode of The Prisoner it's like yeah. way <laughs> out there isn't it yeah yeah. Mm. yeah so it's beautiful I mean I love the whole book but that, that chapter in particular yeah, yeah.
3: It's
1: just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. And I probably didn't read it until the album, like like, like yeah. you. Because I you know, I didn't read read much as a kid. I read football annuals and pop magazines. That's all I ever read when I was a kid, you know. I left, that, school, I left school with two O levels, you know. I mean I was, you know And now I, I was that kid, you know. And now you're writing beautiful books about the Dr. Well. Fucking Chapman as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think <got, I> <laughs>
0: I think uh, I think it's time we gave Dr. Fucking Chapman his, his gifts. Uh, you can take the punk out of the boy. <laughs> a man we can't do without, and I mean that most sincerely, Mr. Jason Barnard. <laughs> Doctor Rob Fucking Chapman. Yeah. Good night, God bless you, and happy trails.